Let me just give you a recap and then we can turn to the next scripture. We started off our 316 studies in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Remember, Paul is thinking of the Old Testament. Now we know with the New Testament, all scripture is both testaments to us. The whole 66 canonized books of the Bible. But Paul writing this is saying, the Old Testament, and we looked at the Old very profitable for these things, for teaching and so on. And so then we looked at the Old Testament at Genesis 3 and 16. Genesis 3 and 16 is when the Lord says unto the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thine husband, and he shall rule over thee. And we looked at this, how the great sorrow or the pain in childbirth is a sign, ladies, of the fall in the garden. It is a reminder, it reminds us that Adam fell and Eve was beguiled in the Garden of Eden. And so we looked at that and we looked also at how the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 would come and the promised seed crushing the head of the serpent seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed. But the children of 3.16 were going through Seth. Remember, Cain killed Abel. Cain is now removed. Seth, the Sethite line, we looked at their names and their meanings, speaking of the coming of that seed. Haven't time to go into it. You can look and listen to it online. And the names were actually of the whole of salvation coming from the names down the line of Seth, then to Noah. And then we went Noah. We had the flood, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And, and the Shemite line was a Semitic line, from, and that brings us to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of course, Israel of the 12 sons and then the tribes. And one is called Judah, and where the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, would come from, and the children from therein. Okay, so we looked at that, I think it was the second week, the first and the second week, and we looked at another 3.16 briefly, which was Exodus 3 and verse 16. That family are now in Egypt. We know the story. And in Egypt, in Exodus 3.16, it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. So here the Lord is, this seed line is now in Egypt in servitude and bondage and slavery. And out of all the peoples in the world, of all the great empires and all of the great leaders, even in Egypt, the Lord sees his Israel people. He's seen them in Egypt. And notice what he says I have surely visited you. In other words, Moses was then the spokesman, the go-between, the reconciler between God and 
Israel. And hence we know they come out of, of Egypt. Israel came out through the blood, under the blood. Remember the door post and the door lentils had the blood on it. And the Lord on the Passover, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And they were released. Notice God sees, God knows, God visits. And there's something for us in our personal lives, in our Christian walk. God knows us. He knows our problems. He knows the servitude. He knows the stresses and the strains and the things that are against us. And he, he visits his people. He comes to get involved with his people. And when his people are under the blood, and you this morning, believer, are under the blood, then he always makes a way of escape, spiritually speaking, that you might be able to bear it, as Paul tells us. Notice, brothers and sisters, he says that he's seen them, what was done to them, what was done. And again, God sees what has been done to you what has been done wrongly to you. God not only sees it, but God will answer it as he deems fit to do so. Don't lift up your hand against it. Let the Lord take care of it. Let the Lord take care of that which or he or she or them or it or whatever it may be that has been against you. Let the Lord work in it. Because God loves his own and God knows his own. We think of Egypt as a type of the world. Did he not see us in the world in our sin? Did God not see you whenever you were unsaved and in your sin? Spiritually, the world is a type of Egypt and the devil being the type of a pharaoh. And we were under servitude, slavery and bondage to sin and uncleanness and unrighteousness. And yet the Lord seen it because he knew you, because you're his. And he came and he set you free by the blood of the lamb. If I was to say to you, what is the first 316 verse that comes to your mind? Before we went into all of these, even now, if I was to say to you, what book with the chapter 3 and verse 16 comes to your mind. I think we'd all say John 3, 16, wouldn't we? He has taught it so much and we know it so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And think we would all know that, that you and I believe in him as, as born again believers. We believe in him. And hence, this is the one from Genesis 3.15, right through all of those names in the the Sethite to the Shemite to the Judite line. Now comes the one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever you and I believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 3.17 says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but in that the world through him might be saved. Through him might be saved. Belief in him through him might be saved. No other means, method, or way. No other avenues 
take note of this, brothers and sisters, this morning and friends. Listen to it. He says he didn't send his son to condemn you. So then, does that mean that everyone is all right? Does that mean we're all okay? We don't need to worry about anything. We're all right the way we are and we can live how we like and sin the way we want and live our own lives and just, sure, he loves us all and that's enough. That's not what it means. You see, he says that he sent not a son to condemn, but to save. In other words, we're all under condemnation until we're saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn. We were, and if we're not saved, we are condemned already. Listen to verse 18. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned. What's the word? What was it? Shout it out. Already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So already we were all under condemnation. Why? Because we'd broken the law of God. And our nature itself, no matter how good we are, our very nature is sinful and depraved in all its ways. And hence, it's unable to save itself. And, and so in, in John 3, 16, he sends forth the one from Genesis 3, 15. And then, of course, childbirth starts. Think about this. Eve did not know what it was like to give birth until, until she had Cain and Abel. Three And at this point in Genesis 3.16, she didn't know what it was like to give birth. She had never given birth before. But by the time she had Cain and Abel, she knew the pains of it. It reminded her that the serpent beguiled this woman, that she gave in to the the temptations of, of the devil, of the serpent. She gave in to the temptations of him, and hence it brought forth this pain. And she would remind herself, uh, be reminded of it, I should say, uh, when Seth then is born. She's, she's never given birth. And then Cain, Abel, Cain kills Abel. She then is, she's never suffered loss like this before. The loss of this child, it, it must have been devastating, obviously, to her. But then she goes again and again through the pain that reminds her of the sin in the garden and the fall. It reminds her of what has happened in, the, in Eden. But the Lord is good to his promise. And through all those generations, he keeps leaving handfuls of purpose along the way. All the names that we mentioned and uh, talking about how the Lord would come. And then to the Shemite line. Remember, Shem means fame. The name Shem or Shem as it's, it's pronounced means fame or glory reputation. God's reputation was in this line. And then we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenants and the promises with them, the 12 sons, one out of Judah. And Jesus says to the Father, and when he's praying, Father, I have come in your name. I have kept them in thy name. In other words, 
the fame, the glory, the reputation of the Father was in him and how he kept the law we couldn't keep, lived the life we couldn't live and died in a place we should have died. His fame, that is the Father's glory, the, the Father's reputation of covenant and promise keeping was in Christ. That's why all, all the promises in him are yea and amen. It's all in Christ, centralized on him. He is the whole pivot of the universe of creation and place point and time of, of faith and instruction. Everything pivots on Christ. On this one seed who crushed the head of the serpent at Calvary. Turn with me please to Matthew 3.16. Matthew chapter 3.16. Is Christ by one? This is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, his ministry was so faithful at it. John the Baptist, his ministry, he was so committed to it. He was called the baptizer, obviously John the Baptist, or as some would put it, John the Dipper. He dipped them in the water and he dipped them out again. Notice in Matthew 3 and verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. Now notice, not unto John, they were opened unto him, but John sees the results of this. The heavens were opened unto him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one that I said would come from Genesis 3, 15. This is him going into 16, the birth starting through Eve and so on. See the words beloved son, and in case some of have heard this before, I've told you this before, so bear with me if you've heard it before. The beloved son are the Greek words, agapetus weis, agapetus weis. And it really means, so agapetus is from agape, and agape love is a love which is called out of one's heart according to the preciousness of the object that is loved. It is a love which is called out of one's heart according to the preciousness of the object which is loved. So, for example, when you might win a trophy for something, you set it in your trophy cabinet, and it's maybe on a mantelpiece or wherever, and you're polishing it, and you just love this trophy. Calls love out of you, you know. It doesn't do anything, you just love it, or you love something in your life, it calls the love out. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one being baptized in the water. This is my Achapitus Fuis, my mature, grown son. The one who calls the love out of my heart because he is so precious to me. It's like our children are so precious. They don't need to do cartwheels and somersaults. But, you know, you, 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 
You need to chastise them at times because to keep them in the right way. Of course, but you always love them. You still love them. You know, they might, they might annoy you at times by the things they do, but you still love them. They call the love out of your heart because they are precious to you. Just calls it out. You don't need to come and bring gifts and presents all the time to you just to make you feel good that you will love them. You love them because you love them. You love them because they are so precious to you. In other words, as an object, they draw the love out of your heart. Here the Son draws the love out of the Father's heart, just draws it out of the Father. And he says, this one here, well, which one? There's two in the river. I'll point them out to you. My spirit will come down like a dove and land on him. That one. The one the spirit lightens on. This one here is my son whom I love, who calls the love out of my Now, when you and I are in Christ, we call the love out of the Father's heart. It's hard to imagine sometimes with the way we act, (laughs) the failures that we can be at times, the things that we do which we shouldn't and don't do which we should and so on and so on. It's hard to believe, but when you're in Christ, you see the love he has for his son is placed upon you. In fact, his love was on you from before the foundation of the world. He's just bringing the two into alignment. And when we're in Christ, he doesn't see me, my failures. He sees me perfect. In Christ. And he do nothing. And he loves you. He loves you. And so, if you go to Luke chapter 3, please, and verse 16. This is the Lord Jesus being baptized again. Mark 1 and 7 will tell you about him. But this is, we'll go to Luke 3.16 since we're doing a 3.16 study. This is reversing back a little just before Matthew 3.16. So we're a little before it happened. Luke 3.16. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Notice here, Before the Lord is in the river, before the Lord is with John the Baptist here, John the Baptist is saying, look, there's one coming. Messiah is, the Christ is coming, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Two things I want you to see here about John the Baptist. Two things to look at. First of all, John the Baptist shows great humility here. He shows great humility here. John the Baptist, if we remember, he was 
a child born from a miraculous birth. God can do the miraculous. Still in the, the, the miracle business, miracle working. And here he had a miraculous birth because his parents were old and past it. And past it. Notice here, he had a miraculous birth. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. In fact, it was a baby in the womb who first recognized the Christ of God. When the Christ of God was in his mother's womb, Mary, it was the baby here in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist. So much for a clump of cells, eh? Jump with joy that Christ was in the womb of his mother. This is the one from Genesis 3.15. Told the babe, leapt, leaped in Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist leaped the sound of the coming Christ. Sometimes I wonder... I was sometimes a bit dead. Are we sometimes a bit dead? This coming Christ, this one who died for us and saved us and redeemed us and washed us in his blood, this one who came, the promise that he's come, we're now looking with hindsight back. And sometimes when we hear his name, yeah, we reverence, but is it a dead reverence or is it a loving reverence? Sometimes I wonder, are we just dead to these things? Is it just, well, it's the matter of fact. It's just the matter of fact. That's, that's, should we not be getting excited that Christ had come? Should we not have an excitement, brothers and sisters, that he actually came for me? For you, I'm not talking about an, an irreverence in a, a mad, um, charismania, you know, let's go mad sort of stuff. No, I'm talking about a reverence of an excitement in the heart and a joy where, where we, we praise him from a heart that's loving him and in love with him. Sometimes we just read this and just glibly goes past. Listen to John the Baptist as he, as he says this to the, those who had gathered at the banks of Jordan. Listen to what he says. I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I. Notice he's mightier than I. He's coming. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to loose. Notice his language. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And he had prophesied, he had a prophesied destiny and great promises were spoken about this one's life. Remember, John the Baptist was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, spoken of by Isaiah the prophet under the inspiration of the Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he spoke, Isaiah the prophet spoke of one coming before the Messiah, the, the, the one who would come and prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. This is John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus said he's come 
as Elijah, not the literal Elijah, but as Elijah. And the angel said that he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And hence he goes and he preaches. It's John the Baptist uh, who, is, uh, who has a Holy Ghost anointed ministry, has a great following. Uh, in fact, uh, in Luke chapter 3, if you look at the cha- first one, it says, Now, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of, Ga- of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Ibelene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests. Listen to the catalogue, the list of names of fame and popularity and men in power and authority from religious and civil. That's who he, the Holy Spirit's putting it on into the quill of Luke here. This is the men of, of, of popularity. This is the men of power on the earth. Now notice, verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. The Word of God skipped over the whole lot of them. The Word of God didn't light on the Romans, and it didn't light on Herod the Edomite. It didn't light on the the Jewish priests, even in the temple. The Word of God bypassed it all and came to a man with a leather girdle, with a big beard, and probably starry-eyed and probably frightened if he walked in here today, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And if it was you and I, we would, we would dismiss maybe this man. But he's the one with the word. He's the one who was anointed with the Holy Ghost in his mother's womb. And this man at the the River Jordan, this powerful preacher says in Luke 3 and 16, I am not worthy. He says, there's one greater than I coming. And he says, I am not worthy. In John 3 and verse 30, he also says when Christ comes, he says to his disciples, John says to his disciples to go after him. Why? He says, he must increase. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. He, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. There's something for all of our lives. Run this round my head, I don't know how many times from I've been writing it. Where in my life, I sit in a, a, a walk, a pray, a talk to the Lord, say, and when I'm writing it, I'd set my pen down sometimes and I'm sitting there, Lord, where in my life am I increasing and you're decreasing that I may change this in my life? That he would increase in me. That Christ would have the full sway of my life. That my will would be swallowed up entirely by his will. Does that make sense? That my will is nothing. It's his will in my life. That my will might be swallowed up by his will. And that might be difficult and that might be hard and that might be painful because there are certain things that the Lord can place his finger on, as it were. And we can say, he must increase, I must decrease. But the problem being is this, 
Sometimes we know it and we say it, but there's nothing comes off it. Maybe when you go home, maybe when you go home today, maybe tomorrow, and even in work or wherever. I remember when I was in secular work and working in stores, I'd done all sorts of different jobs through the years. And I remember if I was in a store, I would have walked down to the back of the store and nobody was about. I just would have stood like this and went, Lord, I just want to tell you I love you. And that was it. I'll see you later, Lord. Not that he stayed there. To live before him, to miss him when we don't talk of him or to him, to miss him when our mind hasn't been thinking on him and about him, to miss him. Do you ever get sometimes you miss him? You miss him? You know, he hasn't went away anywhere. When we miss the Lord, it's not that the Lord has moved. Guess who's moved? We have. We move. John says, I'm not worthy to unloose the shoe latchet. Now, this does give the idea of humility, as we've said. Um, and there's different ways to look at this. Scholars can they sort of bat back and forward. They're not 100% sure the exact context that John was saying this in, but a, a, a slave or a servant would have untied the shoe of someone coming into a house and washed their feet. John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. And, and yet there's so many of us I'm not just saying the people here, talking about us, me. Sometimes we think that we are it. <laughs> that, that a gospel that's centered around a, a, a person a, 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 who can preach or a gospel is centered around a person who can sing or, or, or the, the whole songs are, are, are man-centered and you know, they're, they're humanist nearly, you know, where it's all about me, 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 bless me, bless me, it's all me, myself, and I. When all of it, our worship, the preaching, the singing, the teaching, the leading, everything should be centered on Christ. Everything. Every single thing in our lives. Brother, sister, maybe it's been a job, maybe it's been a promotion, maybe it's been a worry, maybe it's been a fear, Maybe it's been something you're thinking for the good. Maybe it's been a, a move of a house. or Whatever it may be, or, or about getting married or whatever, have you asked the Lord about it? Or have you been put him to the side and we'll see you, Lord, at the altar? Or, or we'll see you at the, at the end of it all? Because that's him decreasing and us increasing. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Three and six. John is giving us an idea of humility. But secondly, John is maybe speaking about redemption here. Redemption. 
For example, turn briefly with me to Deuteronomy, please, chapter 25. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Isn't that what we were told? 2 Timothy 3.16, where we started. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture, Old Testament. Now, let's look at Deuteronomy 25. Just a few verses, please, for Time's flowing. Verse 5. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and hath no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which he beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak unto him, and he shall stand to it and say, I like not to take her. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders, notice, and loose his shoe from off his foot. Notice, and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall say, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. This is to do with redemption. This is to do with building up a name a reputation for the brother in Israel. And John is saying, I'm not the one of the reputation of redemption here. I couldn't even lose his shoe. The one who's coming, he is your redeemer. Turn with me, if you will, to another portion of scripture, to the book of Ruth, please. Ruth, please. Chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 6, just a couple of verses, um, time's flying. Notice, Ruth 4 verse 6. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this is the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore, the kinsman said unto Boaz, buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. So the idea of this is this woman, Ruth, her husband dies. The next of kin is to take her as in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But this man is saying, he's maybe already, we don't know, but it seems as though he's already got his whole line of lineage all sorted out and he doesn't want to upset it. And so he says, I don't want to take her. I might be the next of kin, but I can't take her. In fact, Boaz is playing a bit of a dicey deal. He wants Ruth, but the problem is he's not the next in line. He actually asked him to buy a field. 
The man says he had buy the field. If you read on, he I read before, I'm going to buy the field. But the problem lies in this. He then says, and you have to take her with it. Oh, here, hold on a minute. <laughs> you have to draw a line of something, don't you? You'd want to have a hand on who your brother marries, wouldn't you? You'd be needing to get on with your sister-in-law. <laughs> And so he says that I'll loose my shoe. So the shoe is loosed and taken. Boaz now has the redemption right. John the Baptist seems to be alluding to this, that he's not worthy to unloose, but he's not the redeemer. And John the Baptist is saying, the one who's coming, I'm not even able to loose his shoe. But the kinsman means one of the flesh, one of the same flesh. He comes and he's our kinsman. He came to redeem us. And so whenever we are in Luke 3.16, we see there's more to this than meets the eye. So Christ must increase and we must decrease. Thomas Watson said, the sight of God's glory humbles. The sight of God's glory humbles. I'll speak more about something like this tonight. If you come out, I've got, uh, I, I wrote a whole new message in the last couple of days. And I'm hoping to bring some of God's glory out and the difference between seeing God's glory rather than man's glory. But Thomas Watson writes, a sight of God's glory humbles. The stars vanish when the sun appears. The stars vanish when the sun is brilliant. And in, its, in other words, the, the stars we know you can't see them. The sun is there in its brilliance and in its brightness in the daytime. And John the Baptist is like the stars, but it vanishes. He vanishes when the sun, the only it's the S-O-N, appears. And he says, he must increase. I must decrease. Time has flown. Let me just round this up with a couple of verses. William Bridge says, if you lay at Christ's feet, he will take you into his arms. And the humility is laying at Christ's feet in our unworthiness, yet knowing we are children of God because we're saved. So in Acts chapter 3, 16, Acts chapter 3, 16, it says, On his name, the name of Jesus, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong whom you know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given this man perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This is the man who's been lame on his feet and he's lying at the beautiful gate at the temple in Jerusalem. Peter and John go to pray and they see this man there and he, say, he asks for alms and they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk him or toad. He takes him by the hand and his ankle bones and feet grow strength and the man goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Acts 3, 16. They say, hold on a minute, this isn't our glory. The man who done this, the one who done this to this man is the one whom you crucified and hung on a tree. Read it when you go home. You crucified him. But look what he does to those who need him and want him. What a difference. Who remembers that wee song you sang at the kids' meetings? Peter and John went to pray. Who remembers that? 
A few. Well, we'll sing it. Will you sing it with me now? I apologize again to everyone's ears, especially online. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked them for alms and he held out his hands. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising God in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. There's a whole lot of you knew that and you just didn't put your hand up. You just were afraid of me maybe getting you up to sing it or something. I can say there's an awful lot more volume than there was hands went up. I can tell you that. And I'm glad of that, by the way. <laughs> Let me close this. Perfect soundness. Perfect soundness. It's the word halakleria. Halakleria. And it simply means physical wholeness, healthy and fit for use. It is where Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 the word whole. W-H-O-L-E, that in Christ he presents us whole, our spirit, our soul, and our body. Notice there's only one other place that this can be mentioned in the Old Testament. Will you turn with me to Isaiah 1? Isaiah chapter 1. This is mentioned, as it were, only it's in a negative sense, unfortunately. Isaiah 1, let your eye run down with me, please, to verse 6. And the reason I know that this is the same word, holokreiria, is because the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint is, uh, so your, your Bible is written in the Old Testament, mainly in Hebrew, but there are places where it is in Aramaic, for example, if you're reading the book of Daniel, I'm trying to remember this now, Daniel chapter 1 to about chapter 2, verse 3, 4, is Hebrew, Masoretic Hebrew, from 2, verses 3 or 4 to the end of chapter 7 is actually Aramaic, it's Chaldean language. And then from chapter 8 to 12 to the finish, it's back to Hebrew again. It's back to Hebrew again. But the Septuagint is the New Old Testament in your Bible written in Greek. So you have the Old and the New completely in Greek. And the Septuagint, I'm told, is one of the closest, one of the closest languages to the original text that it was written in. This word here, holokle, rea, is in Isaiah 1, 
And verse, let's go to verse 5. Why should you be stricken anymore? Will you revolt more and more? Notice the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. This is Israel. This is the nation. Today, this is our nation. This is us today. You can see it all over it. Verse 6, from the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed up, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Notice here, the idea here is that the word holoknoria is in this saying, you are full of sores and wounds. You are not whole in the negative. You are not made whole. There's no wholeness in you, no soundness in you. From the sole of your foot, even onto your head. We could say from John O'Groats to Land's End. From London to Londonderry to from Dundee right through to Dublin if you want. Belfast to Birmingham, whatever. There's no soundness in it. All is uh, the sin of the people. And this word is put in, it says, you haven't got a wholeness as a nation, a wellness as a people. And how do we fix this? We fix this when we turn to Christ. In fact, in Romans 3 and verse 16, it says of those who are not saved, destruction and misery are in their way. Romans 3.16, there's an R3.16. Listen, folks, I have so many. I have an R2 pages or more there for you. This is Pentecost Sunday, you know as they call it. 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 tells us, know you not that, you're, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Brothers and sisters, the word temple is the word naos or naos, depends the way you pronounce it. And the, the naos or the naos was, you know the holy place where only the high priest of Israel went in once a year, sprinkled it with blood in the Ark of the Covenant? That was known as the naos. Then it became the temple and he went into that holy place behind the veils. That was the naos. That's where God met the people. And Paul says, this temple's done away with. This temple is now finishing. It's going to be over the religion of the, the ritual and the ceremony. He says, if you want to be saved, he says, you come through the blood of the Lamb. That's the sacrifice. It's not an altar at a temple. It's the cross. It's the blood of the everlasting covenant through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, and the Spirit lives in you. You're the temple. And the word for temple is naos, naos. And he's saying, it's not in this holy place anymore. It's obsolete. That's why the book of Hebrews was written to say it's obsolete. Don't go back to this. And he's saying, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the naos. And when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, they said he was going to destroy the temple. He used the word naos, meaning the holy of holies. That's why they were mad at him. To get the holy of holies, they'd have to destroy the whole outer precincts of the temple. To get through into the inner part. And that whole outer precinct was called the Hegeron. The bricks, the stone, and the mortar, but in where God's presence was. Jesus said, speaking of his body, destroy this temple. 
This is where God dwells, he said, about his body, God in flesh. And in three days, I will raise this temple up. That's what he was speaking about. Next week, we're going to have the children. I think we'll maybe look at something different next week and see how the Lord leads. But I trust you've got something out of these 316 studies. Look them up in your Bible. Some books don't have them. And they're just good to have. There's a theme through it. For some reason, there's a theme. God bless you this morning.